Adid, you want me to let everybody in? You're muted. Hello. Hi, Donna. Hi, Marion. Lewis, Jana. All right, let me just, who else? Welcome everyone. Oh, here we go, some more. Let me just keep admitting, there we go. So I'm gonna give it just a couple of minutes more as people come on. And uh, everybody's got their, their picture off. <laughs> Maybe you're not aware. I'd love to see your beautiful faces. <laughs> hey, Nancy. I have to wait a little bit. Kathy, are you sure? <laughs> are you, yeah, your camera ready. Hi, Donna. Donna. Hello, hello. Your camera ready, too. <laughs> so it's 731. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, so welcome to our national monthly peace builders call. We're on the second Tuesday of every month. And I'd love to know where everybody's from. So if you want to type in the chat where you're from. And, and tonight's call is being recorded. We're also live streaming on Facebook. So after the call, go to the Peace Alliance page on Facebook and like and follow us and you can share tonight's call with others. And let's see. So our mission is to inspire civic action for a culture of peace. We hope our calls inspire, educate, and motivate you to mobilize for peace. Our National Peace Builders Monthly Call features peace innovators and addresses a variety of topics related to strategies that create conditions for peace. On a personal level, we create peace by being peace. Some of our values are empathy. Hello. Hi, we've already started. Some of our values are empathy, compassion, kindness, and connection with ourselves and others. And let's just take a moment to honor the lands on which we gather, the ancestral and traditional lands of native and indigenous peoples of the Americas. We express our gratitude for their care of this land and pay our respect to elders, both past and present. And if you wanna find the native lands on which you live, there is a um, link in the chat. And we have two new programs beginning in October. The first one is Empathy Circles. And I'm gonna read a quote that I found by Rosa Z that just speaks wonderfully about empathy circles. 
Empathy circles are a powerful way to connect experientially with a deeper reality of our interbeing. As we do so, we begin to shed some of the dysfunctional cultural conditioning that keeps us feeling isolated and alienated from one another. And we begin to transform ingrained communication patterns of vying with one another for attention that are the understandable outcome of a culture of scarcity and competition. So the first Tuesday in October, our first empathy circle, and then something else we're starting that's new on the fourth Tuesday, beginning in October, this will be January through October because November and December are usually really busy months for people. Uh, so it's a consciousness raising book club using multicultural themes. So we'll, we'll read stories about people with diverse cultural, linguistic, socioeconomic, and religious backgrounds. And our first selection is Mercy Without Borders by Mark and Louise Zwick. And it informs about immigration, refugees, and asylum issues south of our border. Uh, the book tells stories of joys, hopes, and tragedies of immigrants and refugees who have come to Houston, and it makes an impassioned plea for a change in the political and economic forces that drive people to immigrate. And so I'm going to pass it over to Dee because we're having a Visions of Peace photography contest, and she's going to tell you all about it. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome. We're so glad you're here. I just wanted to give a quick plug for those of you maybe who haven't seen it yet. We have started for the month of September a photography contest called Visions of Peace. And so the best way to learn all about it is to go to our website, peacealliance.org. And it's actually um, highlighted at the top of our, um, if you just scroll down, the first thing on our main page is about this contest. So we're asking folks to um, capture in a photo what your vision of peace is. It can be whatever um, speaks peace to you. Uh, and we're asking folks to be thinking about our five cornerstones when they choose their photograph or when they craft their photograph. And you can learn all about those cornerstones by going to the website. I don't want to take up too much time here. Um, there is a, um, a small fee of $5 per submission, uh, which will go to um, sustaining our work. And then um, the winner of the photography contest is going to win a $100 Costco gift card. So we're really excited about that. The contest is open for the month of September since this is Peace Month. And again, you can go to peacelines.org and look on our homepage to learn all about how to submit your vision of peace. So thanks everybody. Hope we have a great call tonight. I know we will. Thank you, Deanne. All right, so I'm gonna introduce Ali Al-Sudani um, and then we will uh, have uh, time to interview him. And then we'll have 15 minutes for questions at the end of uh, uh, the interview. Uh, so Ali, I, for, I forgot to ask you, how do you pronounce the name of the city that you were raised in? 
Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Maysan, Iraq. Maysan. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I pronounced it correctly. So Ali al-Sudani was born and raised in Misan, Iraq, and resettled in Houston, Texas as a refugee by Interfaith Ministries of Greater Houston in April 2009. He holds a bachelor degree in mechanical engineering from Basra University in Iraq. In 2003, he started working with the British and coalition forces as chief translator in his home city. During this time, the Iraqi militia and nationalist groups began persecuting middle-class individuals who were helping coalition forces, and Ali had to leave Iraq and go to Jordan. Uh, so, and Ali joined Interfaith Ministries here in Houston as a reception and placement caseworker in June 2009. And in May 2010, he was promoted to the Director of Refugee Services, where he served for seven years. Currently, he serves as the Chief Programs Officer of Interfaith Ministries and oversees the following programs, Refugee Services, Meals on Wheels, Interfaith Relations, Community Partnerships, and Volunteer Houston. And prior to joining Interfaith Ministries, he was Senior Program Coordinator with People in Need, a Czechoslovakian-based non-governmental organization. He became a certified trainer in capacity building with the Czech Fundraising Center and administered several medical and capacity building funded projects in Iraq for the International Organization for Migration. Czech Ministry of Foreign Affairs, National Endowment for Democracy, and the United Nations Democracy Funds. So, uh, welcome, Ali. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, so, I wanted to ask you first, uh, Iraq is an ancient place, right? The, ba the Babylon Gardens are so much there, so that, you know, historical things there. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what were the things you loved most about Iraq and what was it like growing up there for you? Well, uh, Kathy, uh, thank you for this introduction and good to see you all. And um, Iraq is, as you said, is one of the ancient civilizations in, in the world, the Babylonian, the Sumerian, the um, uh, Asherian uh, civilizations. I was born and raised in Maysan. It's in the uh, southern part of Iraq. Uh, so I'm a southern uh, by nature. I think there are similarities for uh, the southern people in the south. That's what I and I came from the south of Iraq to the south of the United States, the south of Texas, in the south. So I, growing up, actually, it's, it's an interesting, I think like anyone who grew up in, you know, different countries, they get connected to the food, the culture, the traditions, you know, all of these things uh, combined. But for me and, and people of my generation, I 
I call us the children of war. Um, to grow up, I was in in a primary school where the, when, when the Iraq and Iran war started for eight years. Then after that, there was the first Gulf War. Then after that, the embargo, economic embargo for from 91 to 2001, then the second Gulf War and the, and the trouble of Saddam regime. And um, in a way, you can see that it was really a difficult time, but even within this difficult time and, and, and at the most critical and harsh situations, you find moments where you are uh, connected to the to the land, connected to the uh, to the water, food, and you have uh, beautiful memories, um, even despite these harsh conditions. And I think this is um, applicable to anyone who, you know, grow up in certain areas. They get connected to the land, to the culture, to the people, to the circumstances, and and, and here we go. So you came to this country uh, from Iraq. You were an interpreter for the coalition forces. What was that like for you to be an interpreter? I, my work actually with the British forces back in 2003, it was merely by coincidence. I didn't plan on this. I didn't speak with anyone um, before that uh, time uh, in English. We study English in you know, in Iraq, but, you know, the conversation is different. Uh, one of my friends was in need of uh, uh, someone to translate or interpret for him because his brother was in need of medical attention and the British base at that time was in a, a local hospital. So I went with him and I, you know, translated for him with the with the officer and they offered me a position said do you want to work as a translator and i said sure why not and you know i started and uh you know after a year i had to leave the work because of clashes and uh, threatening situation and uh, it was an experience so were you able to use your engineering degree in iraq very briefly very briefly, actually, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes you study something and you end up doing something completely different. I graduated in 99 and for three years I was working, uh, you know, for a family business. Um, because at that time in Iraq, if you work uh, in public service um, or if you get an employment uh, in your field, your salary probably $3, the equivalent of $3. So I was doing, you know, uh, business and in 2003, the war happened and I started working as a translator. Then I left, then I joined the nonprofit work, which I had no idea at that time uh, what it is. And um, I liked it and it became my career uh, when I was in Iraq, Jordan, and then uh, here in Houston, Texas. Yeah, I was wondering how you made that transition. So uh, you left and went to Jordan. How long were you in Jordan before you came here? Well, I stayed in Jordan for two years, uh, from 2007 to 2009. 
And uh, in Jordan, you know, at that time, most of uh, Iraqi refugees were going either to Jordan, to Egypt, to Syria, um, which is a typical movement of uh, the refugee movement. Uh, when there is um, in a terrible situation and you need to leave your country, then you go to the surrounding countries. And I went to uh, Jordan 2007 I was working with uh, uh, my uh, former um, NGO, People in Need, um, it's a Czech NGO, and I stayed there for two years. And um, at that time, it was, uh, you know, simply I was undocumented in Jordan. So you overstay your visa, you become undocumented, right? And I thought that situation is not sustainable. So that's when I applied for um, the resettlement program to the United States and I ended up in Houston. Wow. So um, what about interpreters makes, it seems like when you hear about people in danger, interpreters, you hear about interpreters all the time. And I know there was like 124 that came to Houston from Afghan from Afghanistan like a couple of weeks ago, right? What what is it about interpreters that makes it so dangerous? Well, I mean, Kathy, you can think about this. You know, an interpreter is someone who's, you know, you accompany the troops, you um, ride with them, you go into different places with them. You talk to dangerous people with them. You, you know, all the things that our troops are doing to do what they need to do. Um, an interpreter is someone who's just technically you are in that mission, but but, but you are not uh, you are not armed. You are the interpreter. So, and in in some cases, this role is key to. Uh, you know, disarm a situation or to explain something or diffuse a situation from becoming something uh, bigger. Yeah. So what about the 126 interpreters that just came here? Right. So Did you have, them, yeah. Sorry have you met that. with them? Well, so these 126 interpreters who came to Houston, I, I knew about them. They were actually journalists, not interpreters. Uh, you are referring to this group, the 126, and there is only 126 individuals who came at one time to Houston. Uh, they were journalists, but they were moved from uh, Kabul to uh, to Qatar, from Qatar to Mexico, from Mexico to Houston. I knew about the situation, and uh, regardless, we um, resettled several families for the last um, month or so. Um, so probably four, fourteen families, and they were interpreters and individuals who were working with. Uh, American troops and American companies in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, so I know there were some soldiers that helped get some people out of Afghanistan working outside of our government because 
um, they were getting texts from people they used to work with and they were doing some, some um, covert operations. Uh, what, was, what was it like for you when uh, we pulled out of Iraq and you knew some people were left behind or you had to leave people behind? Well, so what I can tell you this about uh, when, the, uh, when the American troops pulled out of Iraq, and two years later, or three years later, I think we saw ISIS, you know, occupy several parts of Iraq. Um, it, it was, uh, I, I think, whether you are an interpreter or you are a person that was associated with um, the troops or the companies, think about myself. For me, I had hope that the situation is going to be better. Um, then pulling out from, I think it's a natural result. There should be a pullout from, you can't just as Americans, you can't stay in every part of the world forever. I, I think this is a wrong strategy. Um, but I think when you see that the collapse of the local government of, or the local police and military, um, that was uh, an unfortunate situation. And there are reasons for this, actually. It's not just happened in a vacuum, like all of a sudden like this. To speak about the Iraqi situation, I, I think the dismantling of the Iraqi army after 2003, that was a big mistake. And that led to several other mistakes. And eventually we ended up in a situation where we had to go out and then we had to come back again um, to help and advise and, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, do you still have family back in Iraq? Yes. I have a family in Iraq and they are there and they are fine and the situation is better, improving. And um, I do believe the situation after, you know, Saddam's regime is much better. I do believe that, that it was a, was a good thing to happen. Um, you know, how it happened, that's debatable. What are the um, consequences for this? Yeah. Debatable, but I think it was a good thing that a, a dictatorship was removed. Yeah. So, um, what what's it like for you when you saw what was happening in Afghanistan? because you've been through that process and you just said that when you were growing up, you, you experienced a lot of different wars. Mm -hmm. So when, when what happened in Afghanistan was so tragic and so hard to watch, what was that like for you? Kathy, it was, you know, uh, I think it's unfortunate, it's the least to say, um, but, it wasn't a surprise for me. You know, I think many people expected that this would happen. Now, how soon this would happen, that's probably yeah, the question. Could it take years, months, or weeks? And, and then it took weeks, right? And I, uh, I mean, I, because that's similar to what happened in Iraq. And, uh, um, 
I wish it could have been probably done in a better way. And I don't know if it could have been done in a better way. I, I think sometimes when you are in a situation where you assess all options and you have different strategies and different policies, but you are already in, that, that is, that's it, you are already in, you need a way out. Um, I don't know if there was a better way out other than what, what happened. I hope there, uh, there was a better way, but I think now it's, um, this is behind us, what happened, happened, and we are dealing with the reality of thousands of Afghan allies who supported us and I think we have a moral commitment to help them and their family to start a new life in uh, the So um, the, the Afghan refugees that have come here, where, how, how do you get them settled? And what do you do for them? And was, was there, were there enough places for them to go here in Houston? Right. So I think this is a good segue to give you an idea about the whole refugee resettlement program, how it works at the national, global, national, and local level. So the refugee resettlement is, is, is one of the solutions or the durable solutions for refugees. So what are the solutions for refugees? There are three solutions for refugees. One is you go back to your country. Second is you integrate in the local community or the country of first asylum. And the third one is the resettlement in a third country. And that's what we do here in the United States. The process works in this way. All refugees who are leaving their forced to leave their countries and they go to the country of, of first asylum, you need to register with the UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and to get the status of a refugee. And after that, if none of these two solutions, meaning you go back or you stay where you are, you go back to your country or you stay where you are in the country of first asylum, is feasible, then um, the UNHCR will refer you to a resettlement in a third country. So how this is, everything is overseas. So to apply to come as a refugee to the United States, for example, you go through a lengthy process of medical and background check that will take, I mean, it took me a year back in 2009 when I came. Now the process will take between one year to actually three, three years. As the average, right? So uh, uh, the, the uh, process. Do you, want to, do you want to introduce us to your dog? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I hear I hear him or her. Yes, yes I'm I'm sorry. It's uh, it's okay. You can I, you can introduce us if you want. Yes, yes, I I I, I sure will. So um, what what happened is that after you apply to be resettled. Then you go through this lengthy process of background check and medical check, and uh, you will be interviewed by trained um, uh, security personnel. And once you are approved, 
then your information is going to be sent to the State Department. That is, uh, we, we call it the Refugee Processing Center. And that's actually uh, run by the Department of State. And there is nine national resettlement agencies. Uh, five of them, they are faith-based organizations. The USCCB, United uh, State Council of Catholic Bishops, the uh, Lutheran, the World Relief, Episcopal Migration Ministries, um, Church World Service, um, and, and others, IRC and USCRI and ECDC, they are um, uh, not uh, religiously affiliated. Once this information is done, then they will get the biographic information and then they will send it to one of the resettlement agencies in different cities. And, and then we say, yes, we need to assure the case, meaning we confirm our ability to resettle this case. And once this is done, then they will send us the travel information. Uh, we get the family size, the language, the medical history, the employment history, and so forth. And at that time, our work starts, uh, uh, the, the clock starts ticking, meaning we need to find an apartment, we need to find house. We need to uh, apartment, household items, uh, grocery, uh, airport pickup, um, cultural orientation, referral to learn English, um, integration services, women's empowerment group, refugee youth mentorship, uh, medical case management, employment preparation courses, and we find them jobs. And that's the backbone of what we do, right? So that's in short, is the process of refugee resettlement. Most of our, more than 90% of our refugee families are self-sufficient within six months. Meaning they are able to pay the rent uh, and expenses without assistance from the government. The refugees, when they come, they get assistance from the government, federal government, but it's limited, usually to six months, and it's strictly tied to employment meaning if someone arrives and they say, I don't want to work, I want to go study, and they will not get any assistance, right? So that's, in short, the process of the refugee resettlement. Now, with the Afghan situation, we usually get notification of who is coming, and we would have between two weeks to three weeks, so we can prepare, find the housing and all. Historically, the United States, resettles between 80 to 100,000 refugees every year. Texas, 8,000. Houston, 2,500 to 3,000. Individuals, not families. So what's different now with the Afghan situation is the quick turnaround time. When I say quick, I mean, sometimes we get less than 24 hours that we need to find an apartment and furnish it and provide everything and do all this. Your question is, is there enough housing in Houston? Is Houston able to take these many refugees? And I can tell you that Houston is a very, you are in Houston, Kathy, so you know that Houston is very spacious city. You can drive one hour in the car and you are still in Houston. So compared to other states, 
Um, Houston is probably the size of, you know, some state. Now, housing is, there is a shortage of housing. All of us know this. Um, but what we did, the refugee resettlement agencies over the years, we built a partnership with landlords in um, diverse areas of Houston, mainly in the Southwest, Dalton, the Mahatma Gandhi area. We established this relationship with them where we can get housing in a very short notice. And we have been working with them for more than 40 years. So, uh, so far we are able to find and secure these housing. And uh, by, by the services we provide to the Afghan refugees are similar to the services that we provided historically to other refugees from other countries. Um, what, what is different with the Afghan parolees, we call them, and parolees, this, uh, this is an immigration term that can be confusing for some because someone who was paroled out of prison, it's, it's basically an, an immigration term. These individuals, the Afghan parolees, will not be eligible for public assistance, meaning they won't be able to access Kurdistan. Medicaid, refugee cash assistance that historically the um, refugee uh, families are um, eligible for. And that's why in Houston and Interface Ministries, we um, have been doing a very heavy lifting fundraising um, campaign to ensure that we have uh, enough resources to take care of these uh, individuals. Did you say they're not getting food stamps? As of now, they are not eligible. They're not? They are not. What, what's the reason for that? Well, so the reason for that is basically very simple. If it's a typical refugee situation, they would have been approved before coming um, to the United States. What's happening now is that these Afghans are moved transported, airlifted from Kabul airport to different countries in the Middle East and in Europe, and they will be interviewed, processed, background checked to these countries, and then they will come to the United States. But when you come to the United States, you're technically, your immigration status is similar to the undocumented population, right? So you are parole to the United States, but you need to adjust your immigration status after that to an asylee status, most likely. At that time, you will be eligible for um, the public Gotcha. So um, it's amazing that in six months, people that come here from another country are self-sufficient. Right. That's amazing. And it's, uh, you know, and sometimes when I work with families and uh, you are, you know, just, I'm, I'm amazed and surprised of how resilient and determined these families are. And, um, you know, the bottom line is this. This program is designed based on the American way of life. 
if we talk about um, the American personality, we are very independent. We are very proud of uh, work. Work is a big part of who we are. Right? We have several identities, but we know that work is a part of our life. So the program is designed in a way that the assistance you gonna get as a refugee or asylee or uh, someone who is legally approved to come here is going to be limited. And you are working against time. So these refugees, when they come, they come with tremendous pressure. Um, but they know that they need to secure employment as soon as possible because you know, otherwise, I mean, no one's gonna have a safety net. And for them is not really um, right. So the fact that they understand their situation, their circumstances and what they need to do, that will push them in a way um, to become self-sufficient and secure in fact. Well, what kind of jobs do they get when they come here? I mean, it's, Typical, someone who just arrived to this country, don't speak the language, you might be a professional, you might be a physician, you might be an engineer, you might be a teacher, right? But you don't speak the language, which is, it's a big um, factor. You don't know anyone, you don't have a car. So the kind of jobs that we encourage the refugees to start with, usually light assembly, industry, hospitality, and we tell them like, this is the first step for you. We need to learn about the American worker. You need to expand your network. You need to learn how to use the box. Um, because you need to pay your rent at the end of the month, like, you know, all people, and you need to pay your bills. Um, so once they get this first step, first job, I spent six months to a year. And in the meantime, the ones who are ready and they are uh, willing to upgrade and uh, their jobs, they come to us or we reach out to them. We enroll them in vocational training courses or other classes um, to ensure that they get a better day job. So like a physician or a teacher, at some point, are they able to to pick up their profession in this country or they're never able to do it again? No, they are, yeah, you know, some of them, absolutely. It depends on your circumstances. Now, I have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. When I came in 2009, I evaluated my transcript. I think I had to study for one and a half year or something, you know? And I thought, you know, that's probably a long time for me. I needed to work, so I, and my career was in the nonprofit, so I ended up doing this. But when we talk about an engineer, uh, about the licensing system, it's kind of complicated here. If you are a physician, you need to take the USMLE exam, United States Medical Licensing Exam. And that can take between two years to three years. If you are an engineer, you need to evaluate your transcript and you need to get your PE, professional engineering, and you need to take some courses and so forth, right? So in a way, it's, um, it really depends on the individual and the family, the family themselves, their circumstances. 
and their aspirations. And some of them, they find different opportunities. And they say, you know, I don't want to do this. I want to explore this new opportunity. I want, I want to get, uh, you know, start a business or whatever. So yeah. it is different from one person to another. I have one last question, and then we'll open it up for questions from others. So when you came here, what was the adjustment like for you? It was, uh, I mean, for, for me, probably it wasn't not that much um, adjustment um, because I work with uh, um, expats from different countries uh, when I was in Jordan and I worked with Americans, with, with French, with and checked and and so in a way I was uh, you know I had a life of you know professional career and interaction yet coming to Houston it's uh, one you don't know the culture you don't know uh, the laws you don't know um, like this the, the uh, financial situation. We are coming from cash economy countries, most particularly. And, and here is credit economy countries. So using the credit card, also open a bank. You know, all of these things. It, it takes, I would say, a good a good year. Um, depends on the person, six months, a year, until you adjust and learn and, you know, highways and, you know, yeah. until you find your yeah and what about the adjustment of your family what was it like for them i actually came as a single um, so it was quite easier i think you know yeah shorter yeah great well thank you uh so what questions does does anyone have Nancy, you're muted. Hi, thank, thank you for your discussion. Um, my question is, how much say do, do the uh, people who are resettling have in where they go? Um, I know in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have a huge Afghan community and I would think they would have easier time resettling here if they have relatives here. So how much is the government and how much is the individual um, influencing where people go? Unmute. He's, he's muted. You're muted, Ali. I'm sorry. Usually if you have, uh, if you have a relative or you have a friend, um, and they say, we want you to come with us. Usually, for the most part, you would come and live with them in the same city, San Francisco, California, and you would go there. Um, historically, when refugees are being processed for the resettlement in different parts of the United States, you know, they understand that uh, Texas, California, Maine, other states, they have different characters. Some states are good in economy or the availability of um, certain professions or, um, you know, the, the US tie or the sponsors be part of it. 
Um, so they would try to match and send these refugees to different states. Now, in some states, sometimes the government will say, okay, we have so many people going to, or they want to go to a state that doesn't make sense. Why it's, it doesn't make sense? For example, can't we set up refugees in Manhattan? <laughs> it's just not possible, right? Yeah. California in particular is a very popular destination for immigrants or refugees. But when there is a reason, look, California is different. When, when, when we see on TV all the movies, the United States, all the states is nothing like California. Right? What you see on <laughs> movies is California. Yeah. Everything else is different, right? And so there are reasons why, and the Afghan, actually, uh, they are, big number of them are going to uh, California right now. However, Texas, for example, is also a big destination for immigrants and refugees. Houston in particular, and there are reasons, the diversity, the, the welcome, the cost of living, the good economy, all of these factors make certain cities a good, um, or an attraction for immigrants and refugees. Thank you. Bonnie? Thank you very much for coming to this group and talking. Yeah. Um, I know a gentleman, I've been trying to assist some, that uh, did very similar to you, that he was an interpreter uh, for our military in um, Afghanistan. He is here now. He's been here for a while, but his family is not. And some of the family members also assisted. And he's very terrified um, that he's going to lose some of these family members. And uh, they're trying to figure out how to get here. Um, and I've noticed there's a couple of nonprofits that uh, seem to have helped in the past, but I don't know which ones are good, which ones aren't, which ones are really working on the situations or which ones are just trying to collect money and fame. Um, do you know of any recommendation for him at this time? Well, Bonnie, I can tell you this. I Short answer is no, unfortunately, I don't have a good recommendation for him. But it's not about, I don't have a recommendation about a nonprofit or organization that try to help these family members to join their, um, to join them here as someone who's already in this country. Look, the situation in Afghanistan is evolving. There is still so many things that we don't know. Um, these family members, there are thousands of our clients. They have family members back in Afghanistan. And all of them, they are trying to see how they can come here. There is a process, which is it's called family reunification. Family what? Family reunification. Meaning if you are 
refugee here, please on. You can file for your um, immediate relative. It's mother, father, brother, and sister. Mm -hmm. Spouse as well to join you. Um, this process, it takes time and I don't see it happening soon in Afghanistan. What I think will happen is these Afghan individuals, they will be fleeing to surrounding countries like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and they will become refugees. Well, over the next year or two, the State Department, I believe, is going to probably open refugee processing centers in these countries and start to process yeah, these individuals. Um, I think any organization, you can file this family reunification with them, but I can tell you that there is no clear process right now for how these individuals will be even allowed to go out of Afghanistan and function. Uh, I'd also like to take just one moment to also mention to the group that uh, I'm familiar with many of the military men right now that are going through a horrible case of, uh, let's call it PTSD, where they had made promises uh, to people while they were in Afghanistan, and these promises are, of course, not being kept, and it's really hurting them here very, very much. Thank you. Yeah, Bonnie, I can't imagine how some of our soldiers must feel knowing that they've left people behind, not, not because it's their fault, but because of what happened. So anybody else, we have time for one more question or comment. Lewis, do you want to unmute yourself? There you uh, go. It, how much of a problem is it for a person that has a profession that comes to the United States that he more or less have to work in a less prestigious job for a while? For instance, if you're a doctor, you have to be licensed to practice medicine. So what does a doctor do? Does he become a nurse or helper somewhere or an engineer? Yeah, Lewis, thank you. So the question is that what's the process? How a doctor would become or? Do people get discouraged doing that? What, what kind of work do they have to do when they can't practice medicine? Right. And is it discouraging to, to be doing something else? Right. I, 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 I got that. And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trying to... I think, Lewis, yes, in the beginning, it's discouraging. You are a physician, or you are an engineer, and you have... 
you had a certain social status in your country. You are a, you are a physician, you are a doctor, you are a lawyer, right? And all of a sudden you come here. And look, work is work, but you think that, come on, seriously, I have to do now what? Like, you know, um, entry level job? It can be discouraging. But there is a difference between push factors and pull factors when it comes to immigration. Pull factors, we have good schools, we have good hospitals, good businesses. These are attractions for someone to migrate to the United States. Someone would come here to study, right? So you choose to go and study or to start a business or to invest or whatever. The refugee situation is different. Refugees are under push factors in their countries. It's not a choice. The reason why you left your country because your life was in danger. So in a way, the mentality is you compare between um, discouragement, discontent for a while until you learn the system and between probably losing your life. In this way, most refugees that I know who are professionals who came here and they started entry-level jobs, they had a goal. They know that they are not going to do, you know, uh, this job forever. Uh, but they have to start somewhere and they have uh, to sacrifice. Everything is a sacrifice. They have to sacrifice many things in order to ensure that their families are taken care of. Um, they have a goal that at the end of the day, they will be able to work in their profession. And the future for their kids, they know it's much better here than everywhere else. Our licensing process is very complicated. Um, it's outdated. I think it needs revisions. Um, but with all of these factors, I do believe that the United States is a great country for immigrants and refugees. And, you know, we are a country of immigrants and refugees. We were founded based on this concept of religious freedoms of the first immigrants who came uh, to this land. So the concept, the mentality that it's we are we can I think we can trace all of us here on the call you can trace your ancestor to somewhere else right someone came from somewhere and so in, in this regard I think it's a great country and I think it's wonderful um, opportunity for those who are lucky like me to get this status as refugees and come to this uh, wonderful uh, country and state and city we're glad you're here, Ali. Thank you. Yes. So I'm. We're going to close, and I'm going to uh, put some um, uh, websites in the chat, some links in the chat.
And then I've got a great quote that I think you're all going to love. So um, peacealliance.org, we're guided, guided by the five cornerstones of peace, empowering community peace building, humanizing justice systems, cultivating personal peace, fostering international peace, and practicing peace in schools. The five cornerstones are endorsed in the Blueprint for Peace, and by clicking on the link, you can sign the Blueprint for Peace. It'll notify your state and federal officials that you support policy priorities around peace. And uh, so the five cornerstones of peace and the Blueprint for Peace support the vision of legislation for a U.S. Department of Peace Building. Uh, the bill calls for a department led by a cabinet-level Secretary of Peace Building and is a, is a historic measure to highlight and strengthen our current evidence-based and practical peace building strategies. And there's also a link to the bill to read the Department of Peace Building legislation. If you love and benefit from the programs we offer, consider donating. We are a small nonprofit and appreciate donations of any size. In particular, we appreciate monthly donors so that we can continue to support these kinds of programs with sustainable income. We also have the Hope Story Circles on the second and fourth Saturdays of the month. Peace on Podcast, where you can listen to uh, all of our uh, programs again, our national monthly calls, our hope story circles, and the Department of Peace Building monthly calls. Um, and you can always contact us with any questions at info at peacealliance.org. So I'm going to close with a quote by Mary Pfeiffer. When Europeans arrived on this continent, we blew it with the Native Americans. We plowed over them, taking as much as we could of their land and valuable, and respecting almost nothing about the native cultures. We lost the wisdom of the indigenous peoples, wisdom about the land and our connectedness to the great web of life. We have another chance with refugees and immigrants coming to this country. People may come here with much or little, but they come with their cultures. They bring us gifts. We can marry the best of our traditions with the best of theirs. We can teach and learn from each other to produce a better America. So I hope to see you all next month for our national call uh, and for the, our first Empathy Circle on the first Tuesday in October and um, our first book club selection Mercy Without Borders, the fourth Tuesday. So Ali, thank you so much for sharing yourself with us. And um, I'm just so, like I said, I'm so glad you're in this country and others that come here definitely make us a better country. Thank you, Kathy. I yes, thank you. And thank you for what you are yes. doing and good to see you all. Yeah. So if everybody wants to uh, unmute and say thank you, Ali, or whatever you'd like to say. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. I appreciate your work. Thank, thank you, Ali. Thank you. Good thank to you. Thank you so much. Let's say goodbye, my friend.
Yeah, goodbye, my fellow Houstonian. <laughs> Bye. Uh, 